My name's Sarah Frick, and you're listening to Are You For Real? A podcast all about being real. Like, really real, not just cute Instagram real. Like, real. Hey, you guys. Welcome back to Are You For Real? with Sarah Frick. Today, I am interviewing one of my oldest friends, Adam Draws. Um, from Walker Draws, a company that has been recognized by Forbes magazine as one of the top marketing companies in our world, I think in our country. So um, stick around for this interview. Adam is to die for hysterical. He's super genius. He's a total hustler and he has a lot of good things to say. Okay, guys, we got Adam on the line. Adam, I want you to tell me right now three things. Where are you? What are you wearing? And what did you eat for breakfast? Okay. I am in P-Town at the moment. Um, I am wearing just my underwear and nothing else. (laughs) A little coconut oil. Um, And I just finished a long workout. So I'm having myself one of my insanely delicious shakes that's got 19 ingredients in it. So I'm living life. Do you make these shakes on your own? Not in P-Town, but at home I do. But I like literally like, you know, when they do the add-ons at like, you know, the protein shake bar, it ends up being like a $30 shake. But Mm -hmm. I'm one of those people where if it's like, if they said this fountain of youth is going to save your life, (laughs) I will buy it for whatever price it is. You're diving in. You're rolling around in it. Yes. Swimming in it. Yes. So I met Adam, guys, when I lived with my dad in, in Massachusetts, and Adam's going to tell a little bit about our story, our introduction story. Yeah. So we met, um, so I went to private school up until about 14 years old, and then my parents put me in public school, and we lived in the same town, and you and I met, and I think a lot of the reason why we met was because you had the biggest crush on my brother, uh, and I think you were just using me for access to my brother. <laughs> Little did you know that you were going to get me instead. Um And so, yeah, so we met and you were all about it. And then we kind of became fast friends there. You really quickly after that, I think like only like two years after that, you moved down south. And so um, we didn't like have like this traditional like see each other everyday relationship. But, you know, 22 years later. Oh, my God. We are still going strong. And I think, you know, a lot of what has kept us connected is is that we both have a sick sense of humor. Um, and I think we both are all about the hustle and wellness and success. Um, and I think that, you know, you think I'm absolutely hilarious and hot. So <laughs> those people close to my close to my atmosphere. Yes. So win win, right? So I did have a big crush on your brother, and I totally forgot that until you brought it up. Um And that is so funny. I remember going over to your house and Adam's family lives in one of those like traditional New England style houses where it's split level. So you walk in on the first floor and then the basement's in the bottom floor. And I just remember walking downstairs. I was probably like super stoned too. Walking downstairs and like Josh was sitting on the couch and I could not get a word out. You kept like looking at me. You were like, do you want to like go into the city? I was like, "Mm." you're like, do you want to like do anything? I was like, "Mm." I was like, I was dying. I was dying inside. (laughs) Further paint the picture. Um, You had a curly bob. Um, (laughs) You also couldn't get a word out because you were like chewing on your sleeve. Uh, You just like were like, hi, I'm a weirdo. Don't talk. (laughs) 
Uh, so you really, you really knew at that age how to bring all the boys to the yard. I did. I did. It, it took a few years, but they, they came and they came a knocking. Oh, yes, they did, honey. <laughs> okay, so let's jump ship a little bit. Okay, so you actually graduated high school in three years. Is that right? Yeah. Because you're a genius. I'm, a, I'm more of a hustler um, and a, a schemer than I am a genius. Um, but yeah, so my mother, God, God bless her, you know, knew that, you know, the arts, uh, was something that was really, uh, important to me. And it was something that really helped me find kind of a place in this world, being a young flaming homosexual, um, <laughs> in, in suburbia. Uh, and- wait, can I ask you a question? Sorry to interrupt you. When did you is is saying coming out is that like the right thing to say or is that like I never know the right thing to say ever in general but especially in, around topics that might be sensitive to other people yeah no coming out is like what what the term is and I think that you know but is that like rude because it's like what am I coming out of like you know what I'm saying I mean listen everybody is so fucking PC I know that's why I'm thank god I'm talking to you can I curse yes I just said I was high in your basement <laughs> I don't hear a cuss word, honey. Uh, yeah, no. Um, everyone is so PC about how uh, about how to speak and how to you know conduct themselves. And, and the reality is, is that you know, I'm me, and like this is my perspective. And I always come to the table with love. So if you don't like it, uh, go fuck yourself. Yeah. <laughs> Same, same. Same, same. Um, so yeah, no. So I actually had a very like light, easy, breezy, funny coming out. Um, you know, I was always, you know, super flamboyant. My mother was super supportive of it. My father was super supportive of whatever my mom was supportive of. So <laughs> he was by proxy supportive. Um, and, you know, the whole, the whole, the wonderful thing was is that my mother always put me into fine art programs and one of the when I was in the, when I was younger and during the summer she would put me into college level art classes all summer so I did college art level classes at Skidmore I did uh, a huge program at world renowned university uh, RISD in Rhode Island so by the time I walked into my junior year of high school um, I had enough college credits that I could actually move them to high school credits and actually, by law, graduate early. So I was actually able to finagle the system, which I found out actually recently they don't allow that anymore, probably for that reason. Is that something you wanted to do? Were you like, listen, I got to get out of this, out of you know, suburbia and move on with my life? Or was it just like kind of by fault? I think, you know, my mother, it was so in tune with me and my energy, and she could see that I was becoming more stagnant. Mm-hmm. She could see that I was more unhappy, and she knew that I knew what I wanted to do with my life. And so she kind of felt like, why why have him burn time if he's on that track? Right. But that kind of leads to the coming out story because I applied early to FIT um, and my mother didn't think I was going to get into college. So her whole rationale was if you get into college, you can graduate early. Um, And I got in. And so she kind of scrambled very quickly like, oh, fuck, 
my, you know, 16 year old son is going to be leaving, is going to be leaving home and moving to New York city. And like, I am not emotionally prepared for this. And, you know, I need to, to know that like everything is cool. So she actually made me come out before I left for New York because she wanted the dialogue to be out there. Um, so that I wasn't going to get into trouble when I was in New York and thinking I had nowhere to turn. Right. Little, little did she know I got into fucking trouble anyway. <laughs> I don't think that, that Roz is that, um, naive. I think she knew you're going to get in trouble. However, um, that's a really, that's a beautiful story. I've never heard that before. What a, as a mother now myself, like that's really special that she was so it, like in tune with you and in flow with you and like supportive because um, you guys don't know this, but Adam is the middle of three boys who are all pretty different, aren't they? We're all vastly different. Um, we all share like a common ground and we all love each other. We're all super, super, you know, fun and funny. Um, but, you know, um, she knew that my path was going to be different. And I think that, you know, there as mothers today, I think that there's a lot more access to different mothers doing different things. And I think it's a lot more acceptable to raise your child in a way that's comfortable for you. Um, you know, there are, you know, people who have children that start to transition at eight or nine years old now, um, mm-hmm. tra- transition genders. Um, and you have a lot of, of people who are, are breaking the norm of what you're supposed to do as you segue into adulthood. Um, my mother once told me, it was actually really awesome. Uh, there is an, she gave my kindergarten teacher an article that she had found called Child XY, and it was about raising a child without gender. And this is 1987 at the mm-hmm. time. You, you know, she was extremely ahead of the curve, and she also believed that, you know, you should raise your child on their core identity and not into gender norms. So she was very ahead of the game, ahead of the game. And um, I think because of that, I was able to kind of get on my professional life course much mm-hmm. quicker than most. Um, so, yeah. I think that's, that's amazing. I love that story and I've never heard it before. So that's a, that's a great share. So let's talk about then. Okay. So you're 16. You have just come out to your whole family and you're like, you're feeling yourself. You're feeling good. You moved to New York city at 16 and you live by yourself. Your mom doesn't go with you, right? No, I moved to New York. I move into like, you know, the registered dorms and literally I lasted three months in New York. And mm-hmm. so, you know, so much of my story of success is literally falling on my face. And, and you know, for me, it was one of these things where it was like, you know, I, I always felt this process of, you know, hitting my benchmarks at a very young age and then not knowing kind of what to do next or not knowing what to do with that. Um, and I think, you know, a lot of the, um, a lot of the things that played a part in, in that first exit was, you know, my exposure to drugs and alcohol. I think a lot of it was, you know, being put into very grown up situations um, that I was not emotionally ready for. And, you know, just kind of that anxiety of like, you know, walking down this road of success without really the right tools to execute that and tools that a parent can't give you. Thanks for letting us moms off the hook right there. Girl, get off that hook. (laughs) 
there's a certain point as a parent that it's just like, you know, you're, you're playing with a toolbox that's out of date. You're playing with like, you know, a deck of cards that just doesn't apply. It, 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 the world is changing. And so you have to let your child fall on their face and you just have to make sure that that fall isn't too hard. So yeah, so I was in New York, um, went to FIT, left FIT, uh, came back to Boston to kind of regroup. Um, I went to the museum school in Boston for like an, uh, like five, six months. Like, again, like this is kind of like my, my pattern um, that I had as a youth that like I hated, I hated college. Wait, can I pause you for a second? I just had a flashback. <laughs> Did you have an apartment in Boston that where you had a bed that was like in the wall kind of? Yes, the cave. Yes, I remember that. Okay. I had the cave and it served me well. Um, yeah, um, you know, for me, you know, institutions for whatever reason have never really clicked with me. And I've always like, the I always wanted to be 35. You know what I mean? Like when I was <laughs> eating, I was like, I need a car. I need, you know, clothing, I need this, I need to live my life, I need to go out for lobster and champagne. And my mother's like, you're 16, what are you talking about? <laughs> you know, I just always wanted to work and, you know, push came to shove. Like, that's, I, you know, that's where my career really started. Okay, so you were in Boston at the museum school. Now, from Boston, is that when you moved to London? So, yeah, so it's actually really interesting. So I was in Boston and... When I was there, I worked for a, com- a a store called Louis Boston, and Louis Boston was a iconic store in Boston. Unfortunately, they closed uh, three years ago, mm-hmm. um, but they were going since the fifties, and it was basically a very high end store for men and women. It was the first opportunity that I had into like how the functionality of fashion worked. Like, wow, I'm in a pretty store, but like, how? What is a buyer? What is a merchandiser? Um, you know, w- w- so for me, I was actually being exposed to the industry in Boston, which was very, which was very special. Um, and then I moved to London because I wanted to get the fuck out of America. And mm-hmm. London always seemed so glamorous and amazing to me. Um, I went to London. I, you know, my parents wanted me to go to school in London at the London College of Fashion. Meanwhile, my scheming brain was like, I'm going to get a work. I mean, I'm going to get a school, a student visa and not go to school. And I'm going to get a job. I'm going to get my hustle going. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what happened. So I basically got to London, got my, my, my work permit. And I remember going to the library there and going to a designer glossary where you could like find the numbers to oh all gosh. signers like like points of contact so while i was in the library i called this design there was a brand that i was in love with called preen which is still going strong mm-hmm. there was a contact number for them so i called them cold called them I was like hi like i for <laughs> you um and it was actually th- their press office and I called at like 9 p.m. I remember this so vividly. I called at like 9 p.m. Um, and the only person that was still in the office was the owner of the agency. And he was like super intrigued by the fact that some random American boy is calling at 9 p.m. at night being like, I want to work. Um, mm-hmm. 
And I think he was just more like intrigued to see who this person was than anything else. And so I came in for an interview and I had, by the way, <laughs> I had no money and I like, was like, I'm going into like a big fashion PR firm. Like I need to like look right. I need to like look <laughs> cute. <laughs> and this is the best thing of all. And I, I, you know, I had no money, so I didn't know what to do. So I had like this wide leg trouser and I thought like what their interpretation of avant-garde and cool would be. So I cut a slit up the leg. <laughs> <laughs> So I show up to an interview in like a trouser and then like one leg has got a thigh high slit and I'm crossing my legs with my thighs out. And like, it, it literally like couldn't be even, like, I mean, it, it, he, he, the, the owner of the agency had so many questions going into the interview, but that when he saw me in my high slit trouser, um, even more questions. I'm like crying right now. I can so see you with your long legs. Yeah. And and by the way, I went through a whole chapter in that period of like cutting one sleeve off of a shirt. I, my mom, my mom always tells this story. It's so funny. So I came back from London. um, And, you know, this is like, this is like about how crafty you can be when you have no money, but you just have like sheer willpower. And so I came back to Boston, like, I think it must have been Thanksgiving, and my mom was taking me to the orthodontist for my, like, normal checkup or whatever, and I wore uh, a pillowcase (laughs) with three holes in it (laughs) to Sudbury Orthodontist, and my mom, to this day, is still like, I can't believe you took, like, my old pillowcase and wore it. But but me and, like, my set friends that I had in London, we all wore pillowcases because I was like, this is the rage. This is where we're going. Put on the pillowcase. And I've got photos of all of us in different um, iterations of a pillowcase. But my favorite part of that story is you are setting trends in London with pillowcases, but when you go home, your mom's taking you to the orthodontist office. <laughs> right. Well, you know, the funny thing is, and that we always talk about it, is that my mother, you know, I would be like out, like doing drugs until five in the morning, working at eight in the morning in London, like having the time of my life. And I would come home to Boston. My mom would give me an 11 p.m. curfew. She's like, not under my roof, honey. She's like, you can go back and do whatever you're doing. But when you're home, honey, you're home at 11. So, yeah. So I went into this interview and, you know, he gave me a chance. And, like, I basically worked for him for free for six months. I learned the entire ropes of what PR and marketing was. Um, This is 2001. Um, And, you know, he was a slave driver, but I worked harder than I ever had. And then, like, moving into, like, year two of working for him, he started to finally pay me. And I remember it vividly. I got paid 150 pounds, which at the time was, give or take, like, $275 a week, like like slave driver. Um, But, you know, I needed to make money. So I cocktail waitress at night. Um, And, you know, I was that girl. I like would work all day, work all night, live my life, live off of one egg sandwich and like sheer dreams. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I worked my way up the ladder with him and I traveled the world with him. I got to go to Paris and Milan and Germany 
and really understand the functionality of, of the fashion industry. Um, and then a brand that I really loved, her name was La- her name is Lara Bohink. She's a jewelry designer, but she designs jewelry and accessories for Gucci, Lombin, X-Day. Uh, she did a lot with Chanel, Shiseido, Mac. I mean, she did a lot of design consultancy. And so her business was a very interesting business because she had her own namesake brand, but she also had all these design projects coming in. And it was like such a fast paced company. There was only three of us. And so she brought me on as her assistant. And like, I guess for lack of better words, I became the president of that company over three and a half years. Um, And that brought me, I was in Asia. I went to Tokyo. Um, We did so many fun projects together uh, and she really let me grow, uh, you know, her business with her. And I actually saw her last year and it was such one of those Oprah full circle moments where like, <clears throat> I'm sitting with somebody who gave me like my real start as like a professional mm-hmm. uh, and for her to come in and be asking me for advice about the industry um, and just to be a peer with her and an equal, um, it was such a blessing for me um, to kind of know that, you know, that growth happened. And, you know, I'm, for, I'm, I'm forever thankful for the women and men who have mentored me in various ways through my career. Uh, and there's a bunch of them. And I'm so, uh, you know, that was my education. That was my university. That was my school of life. And um, I was really able to learn from a lot of others. And, you know, now uh, that I'm a boss of 20 people, I'm really conscious of that mentorship mm-hmm. and very conscious of education through um, observation. I want to pause you right there because I want to go into Walker Draws in a second. But first, I want to just talk to you about this mentorship thing, because I feel like even in my industry, like, you know, like you study under teachers and you take the time and like you're like teaching for free. Or I mean, I'm like, you know, I taught for free and I was cleaning toilets and folding lavender towels and doing all these things. And I have found and this doesn't go across the board, but I do, I don't know if it's generational or if it's situational where I live or what it is, but I find that sometimes it's really hard to find people that are like, want to do self-study to get really good at what they're doing. And they're like, wait, I'm not going to get paid for this. And I'm like, get paid. Like I, I paid someone so I could just learn my craft. Um, do you feel like that in your industry as well? Or do you feel like people are more open to studying? No, I mean, it's an interesting dialogue because we live in a millennial generation or a Gen Z generation where, you know, anybody has access to the world. And so they create this dialogue in their head of how it's supposed to be. um, And they see, you know, so-and-so come up the ranks, like, you know, some fitness influencer because she's got a six-pack. She's got one million followers on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And the reality of the situation is is that she doesn't train anybody. She's not a a health expert. She's just a fitness model. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, so there's a, di- you know, I think a lot of youth, and I'll use that term loosely, you know, create an alternate dialogue of reality um, on what they think their career and their life is supposed to be. Um, I, at the same time as well, you know, I also think about, you know, when I was that age and yeah, like I had a, di- a different view of, um, of what 
I thought my life should have been, you know, but I, you know, had a real reality check very quickly on in my, in my career. I think with the people who work for me, you know, it's very important to engage with interns engage for people who are in education and who are wanting to be in this industry um, because you kind of got to earn your stripes before you, you grow. And I think every single person who works for us has, you know, has done that and is growing and growing. Um, I think it's really about, you know, creating healthy boundaries mm-hmm. um, while also giving the right kind of exposure. Um, yeah. And at the end of the day as well, it's also about setting an example. It's like, girl, if I'm working 16 hour days and you're not, there's a problem. You know, it's an interesting conversation. And I get a lot of people being like, "Ugh, millennials, Ugh, they, they're so entitled. Ugh, and I'm like, yeah, but we were too. And, right. Good point. Uh, and, but at the same time as well, it's also like, what are you, what, what is your part in this equation? I, you know, if you don't like the way that, you know, these children are acting in your atmosphere, change your atmosphere, change the children, like figure it out. And mm-hmm. we definitely go through a lot of people, um, in, 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 in that kind of entry level world. Uh, but yeah, I mean, at the same time as well in my industry, you know, youth and being aware of what is new and what is cool and what is hot, it's really important for it to be a, um, kind of cyclical relationship. Like they come to me and they're like, Oh my God, Billie Eilish is like the hottest thing right now. They were telling me this nine, 10 months ago. Right. How Billie Eilish is like, you know, the girl. So it's important for me to understand, you know, what goes on in their world as well. And that, and I can relate to that too. Cause I always say like sometimes, especially like Mondays, I'm like, I just, I'm like, I feel like I'm aging myself out of this industry. And that's partly why, like for me, you know, my job had to change. So it wasn't just fitness. Like there is a podcast, there is streaming, there is heart work and meditation. And, you know, I speak with women on fertility and all these other things because I had to broaden my, my spectrum, I guess, to, to reach people that I could relate to as well. Not just, you know, a 25 year old with a freaking hot body that's never carried a baby. And not that, you know, whatever, you don't have to carry a baby to be older and have, feelings about your body. However, just, you know, I think you're right. Like you, there has to be a give and a take with that type of an age group. And it is relative. Like, I love what you just said. Like we weren't entitled to, because let's be real. Let's be real. I mean, but I also think as well, like, you know, I see what you're doing at the moment and, you know, I'm actually very uh, funnily enough, I'm speaking, um, in a couple of weeks on this panel about, you know, career paths of people in various industries. And it's like, you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, which is you're diversifying your exposure. You're doing podcasts. You're talking about other things, you know, gone are the days where it's like, Sarah, you're a yoga instructor and that's where you go, girl, stay in your fucking box. Mm-hmm. No longer about that. I think if people, the consumer, the audience, they don't want a one note trick. They want somebody who comes to the table with diversity and has different perspectives on things. You know, I'm holistically speaking, I'm supposed to be 
a very behind the scenes, you know, person. Um, my energy just won't allow that. But I also think <laughs> <laughs> she's she, she just won't allow that. Yeah. But, but at the same time as well, I think that, you know, audiences in various forms want to know how things work now. You know, how does fashion work? They want to. They want to see behind the scenes. That's what it is. I mean, think about freaking reality TV. It's like taking over the world because people want us. People want what's real. Like we're all craving human connection, even if obviously reality TV is not real. But it's still like this look into these people's lives. You know, Rachel Zoe told me a while ago. You know, there is no such thing as behind the scenes anymore. People mm -hmm. want us all now. So I took a big note from that. Okay, so I want to talk about your business. Yes. So I was in London for almost seven years and um, the industry was changing. And so a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of celebrities were on the covers of magazines, which had never happened before. You know, people don't remember the days when it was just models on the covers of magazines. Mm -hmm. And celebrities were starting to become on, starting to be on covers of magazines. And I started to get these really interesting requests uh, for celebrity opportunities for my for my for my clients. Um, and it was really exciting. I remember it being like uh, there was like this three month span where I was working with this world renowned Oscar nominated costume designer, Ariane Phillips. And Ariane was doing the Madonna do, doing Madonna's world tour and wanted a bespoke custom um, set of sunglasses, but she needed 45 pairs of them because of the, you know, Madonna would throw into the audience after the show. And then we start to do a little bit more custom work with her during, um, you know, her whole promo, her promotion around uh, Drowned World uh, tour, which was, I think that was 2003, 2004. Um, and then literally that same month, I got a request from this young up and coming stylist, which we didn't know what that really meant at the time. Her name was Rachel Zoe. And mm -hmm. she the entire cast of Charlie's Angels and wanted product for the red carpet. So for me, I was like, this is all so cool and exciting. I'm like, you know, choosing items for Drew Barrymore and for Cameron Diaz and, you know, working on designs with Madonna. It was like, there's all this stuff that like really kind of made me excited. You've come a long way since wearing the pillowcases at this point. At this point, at this point, the pillowcases were on the pillows. Okay, good. <laughs> I went to LA to check it out and I had a friend who was a jewelry designer there named Shelly Litback and Shelly was awesome. And I came out to LA to see her and like look at her business and I absolutely fell in love with LA. It was like all of a sudden it was like, wow, there's some, you know, there's, there's a lifestyle here. There's sun, there's health, there's palm trees, um, there's celebrities. It all just was like so different and refreshing than the hustle of working 20 hour days, bar, you know, cocktail waitressing and, and running a, a design company and there being horrible weather and horrible food. And all of a sudden I just felt like the air came back in the room. And so I came out to LA, I got, um, a job working and running the VIP division for a, a agency called Starworks and Starworks represented brands like Burberry, David Yurman, Diesel, uh, Monique Louye, uh, 
Agent Provocateur, the list goes on. They had a huge, wow. strong roster, and I was working on the VIP team there, and I absolutely like thought that, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be, and I fell hard on my face. I hated the energy there. I it, The idea of like putting a celebrity in a dress with a purse and like everyone being up in arms about like getting the dress from New York to LA for her to wear, like I could care less. It, it, it was a real, a real um, stressful time for me because I had left this life of creativity and I was kind of like, almost like a FedEx Depot, receive a dress, give a dress. Right. And so I left and I was really lost. I was really, really lost. I was definitely like partying too much. I was definitely like not knowing kind of what I was meant to do. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of dug deep. It was like, you know, I know I can probably like call a couple of people and get like enough money to pay my rent. And so in 2008, I opened my company and I did it in my studio apartment. I had two racks of clothes. Um, I, it, the, the, it was a 375 square foot studio. Oh my gosh. Uh, it, and every morning I would roll the, the racks from one side to the other. Uh, and it was, it, it was laughable and, you know, I barely had anybody come by my space because it was very weird, you know, but I had a lot of like, I had like three or four young designers and, you know, what I did was I knew full well that like, you know, all these stylists that represented all these celebrities, they won't come to my little shithole studio apartment, but if I go to them, they'll maybe be a little bit more open to it. And so for a good year and a half, I would wake up every morning and I would load my car up with stuff that I thought people would like. And I would drive over house to house and studio to studio, hawking my goods. Oh my gosh. And it worked. And it worked. And then um, in 2009, a mutual friend of, of, of mine and my business partner introduced me um, to her. So Jennifer Walker... Um, was the number two vice president of uh, All Saints. And All Saints was huge in Europe. Um, and then they were branching into America and um, they knew that they needed celebrity. And so I like met up with her at the Standard Hotel. We had some bourbon. I brought photocopies of some of my placements. I mean, this is what we're talking about. Yeah. How, how, how I just like brought a binder and, you know, she and I really connected. And then like the next day I, I let her know, like, Hey, listen, like I know Kristen Stewart would want some leather jackets. And I, you know, I know that, that Katy Perry is about to go do a promotion and she's like, you, we haven't hired you yet. And right. I'm like, I know girl, but like, I feel this and blah, blah, blah. and literally I kind of like backed her into a corner to hire me. And she did. And you know, for six years, I brought that brand to America. Um, we opened 47 stores. Um, every celebrity and, and their mother was wearing the product. And, and you know, my company grew exponentially. Um, and then that, my, that client, Jennifer Walker, um, five years ago, became my business partner. Um, and so we have actually worked together for 10 years, but just in different dynamics. 
Um, but the company grew and grew and grew because I had this really hot commercial brand. Um, and, you know, in baby steps, you know, I finally was able to, like, get a thousand square foot office down the road from my studio apartment. Um, then I was finally able to move out of my studio apartment into a, a one bedroom apartment. Um, then I moved into 3000 square feet and now we're currently in almost 6,000 square feet with 20 employees, 35 brands. We focus on fashion. We do beauty. We do cannabis. Uh, we do wellness. Will you tell us some of your brands? Current roster, we look after Revolve, uh, we do House of Holland, we do Luxotica, which is 18 eyewear brands, so I do all the eyewear brand, all the celebrity strategy for eyewear brands such as Ray-Ban, Oakley, Persol, Armani, Miu Miu, uh, Versace, Dolce, Tory Burch, Michael Kors, uh, we also look after Fashion Nova and Cardi B for Fashion Nova. Uh, we do a lot in the beauty sphere now. Um, we work with renowned skincare company, Kate Somerville. Uh, we just signed an amazing British brand called Christopher Kane. He's, you know, award-winning British designer. Uh, yeah. That's amazing. We're super, super blessed. Talk to me somewhere in this, in between then and now you have been sober for how long? Um, I'll be celebrating my 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 fifth birthday on September 25th. That's amazing. Yeah. So I got sober. And, you know, sobriety is this very interesting thing because, um, you know, when you think of people who have drug and alcohol uh, problems, you know, the normal person immediately reverts to, like, the crackhead in the alleyway. And the reality is, is that, you know, I was struggling with drugs and alcohol for a very large part of my life. Um, was it going to kill me? I don't think it was um, in the short term. But I was, I woke up almost five years ago with a thriving business that was growing. Um, and I absolutely hated my life. I, um, was filled with anxiety. I always called it checks and balances. So like mm -hmm. I'd work so hard and then I would drink because I deserved it. And I was so stressed out and woe with me and all this victim, victim syndrome that I had. And I was in a really toxic relationship at the time as well, which kind of, you know, I had this big pot of shit and I'm saying to myself, you know, everything that you have at the moment you've asked for and like you just I didn't like it. And I was so scared that all this that I had created um, wasn't what I wanted or wasn't serving me. And I, you know, by the grace of God, I had a, a, a friend of mine named Douglas Friedman, world renowned um, fashion photographer uh, who I knew was sober, whose career and life I really loved and emulated. I mean, he was successful. He was handsome. He had his shit together. Um, he was funny. He was a good time guy. And, you know, we had a friendship and I called him one day and I was really upset. And it was about a week after I had a big fight with my, my ex and I was just telling him, like, you know, you don't know me like that intimately, but like, I hate my life at the moment and I'm just lost and I'm feeling like I'm filled with anxiety. And, you know, I, I, I think I might be depressed. And, and he was like, girl, you need to get sober. 
really? And he's like, oh, yeah, honey, you a mess. I'm like, I'm really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. How did he know just from you cheering it or because he could just see your actions? He could see my actions and he could hear it in my voice. And, then you know, he was saying it with love because he also had been a mess as well. And he also said to me, you know, you've got so much potential and, you know, you've got, you know, people like you and people want to do business with you and people want to be around you. But like, you've got a lot of things that are, 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 are making the waters very toxic. And mm-hmm. I never really thought about sobriety and, you know, in my family and, you know, it's not appropriate for me to talk about, you know, my brother's struggles, but my older brother has, um, ha- had struggled in the past with his sobriety um, and, you know, has been sober a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Longer than you? Yes, much longer than me. But, you know, I didn't really think sobriety was for me or that I had a problem. And I went into the room, into the rooms of AA and I found so much reprieve and I found so much joy and I found so much clarity. And I realized that I was using drugs and alcohol as a crutch to, to cope and to survive. And I realized that my life was very full and I really didn't know how to manage it on an emotional and spiritual level. And sobriety gave me a lot of tools to to grow. And I honestly believe that five years ago was like when I actually first became a man because I was able to actually live my life with clarity, be of service to others. Um, and in tandem with that comes all these gifts. And those gifts were, I got really deep into fitness and I have a body that just won't quit. You really do. And I'm not kidding. And I'm going to share a lot of pictures when we do your this, Adam, your body, because, and I'm going to just, I'll speak because I mean, you know, we all go through like puberty, like I did too. And I'm like, you know, like I just didn't care. I ate like shit. I drank like shit, whatever. And we both did that together. And like, we were both tall. So it was, we could pull it off probably a little bit better, but I mean, your body is lit. It is so cut. I mean, you're gorgeous. You really are. You look like a piece of art. Well, you know, like that's the goal. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you did, you did it, buddy. Well, you know, the thing that I realized was, is that, you know, I suffered from a lot of self-hate and I suffered from a lot of insecurity. And I don't think that a lot of men talk about their, uh, you know, their insecurities with their bodies and they don't talk about their self-hate and self-shaming. I think that women, um, there is a lot bigger of a forum to talk about food issues, body issues. Um, and I don't think that there is enough out there for us men. Um, but in the gay community as well, it's like everybody is one-upping each other on the body front. And so there's a lot of anxiety that comes with that. And I think that for me, I when I got sober, I really wanted to like focus on my body and I had physical and materialistic goals that I wanted to achieve. But, you know, now I have such a strict workout program that yes, it maintains and gives me the body that I want. Um, you know, and by the way, I, I wake up and I'm still not happy with my body because I still suffer from these issues yeah. that, 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 you know, lie deep within my, my, my soul. But I use fitness as a means to turn my body and brain on so I can tackle my day. And then I use it at the end of my day to turn my brain and body off so that I can find serenity. So you work out twice a day? I work out twice a day, six days a week. And then I work out on Sundays uh, just once. But I do... Oh, you give yourself such a break. 
I do. Well, you know, I'm like, you know, resting's massage, right? Um, <laughs> do you feel like as you've gotten older, though, just from a fitness person's perspective, like, do you not do you not injure yourself ever? Um, I indulge with food. I'll eat whatever I want at times. Like I'm on vacation right now and I will eat what I want without second guessing it. Um, I don't really like, uh, like go through any phases of like, I'm just going to be lazy today. Uh, cause it doesn't really serve me. It actually brings me anxiety. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also have to talk about that openly with, with the people around me that I trust because it does sometimes uh, have an addictive relationship. Because, um, mm. you know, when you do get off drugs and alcohol, your addiction goes elsewhere. Some people have tons of sex. Some people have food issues. Uh, some people have shopping issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find myself kind of in that realm of working out and diet restriction and body dysmorphia is. <laughs> um, that's where my addiction lies, you know? Yeah. I, I, I don't really have this, like, rampant sex life. I don't really abuse food. Um, I think that's some, some that's where the, the, you know, addiction is a very, very smart thing. And they say in the, in the rooms all the time that, you know, while you're, while you're sober, your addiction's in the corner doing push-ups. Like, mm. it's always going to be there. So, so talk to me about that then. Like, so do they say you ever, because it's interesting because I work with a lot of people that are sober as well in my own room, in the studio room. And they do say like, this practices like changed my life and and gives me something else to put my energy towards. So, I mean, do you think by nature as humans, some people just have more of that tendency than others? Does my mother and father have addiction, addictive personalities that carried over to me? Yes. You know, does my mother and father have neurotic or other kind of mental issues that have carried over to me? Yes. Did it make me an addict? No. I think that, you know, it's a physical allergy that one has. I think it's also mixed with a socioeconomic upbringing. Like I was able to have access to proper mental care and proper, you know, the right kind of uh, support for my addiction. But I also believe as well that, you know, I walked into sobriety with a fairly successful life, Mm -hmm. Um, family that loved me, with friends that supported me, with a business that was thriving. And I didn't want to lose any of that. Um, We both know people who have succumbed to addiction. And Mm -hmm. it breaks my heart because I wonder, you know, what, what could have happened in their life that could have been that crossroad of, if I take a left, I'm going to die. If I take Mm -hmm. a right, you know, I'm going to seek salvation. And, you know, and I, and I feel like with me personally, I woke up one morning staring at the ceiling, completely hungover, probably on an hour sleep. Uh, it being like a Tuesday, Mm -hmm. 20 degrees, birds chirping and sunny. I'm like, I have a choice that this could be the last time that I feel this way or not. And for you, when you did decide to get sober, you've com- that decision for you is from day one to 
five years in September 20th. Is that correct? I've never had a relapse. And that's, you know, that is my story. There's a lot of people in my life who relapse is a part of their story. That doesn't mean that they're any less worthy. And that doesn't mean that that their, their struggle is more or less. Um, I was blessed enough that that was my story. And you know what? I mean, I'm only five years sober and I feel like I've lived five lives already, but Mm -hmm. I'm, you know, I I hope by the grace of God, it stays that way. You know, I don't know. Um, it, my, my sobriety, um, just like anything else that we value in our lives takes work and effort and attention. Um, and you know, I go through very different chapters of it. I go through chapters where it is not a priority, um, and my addiction exposes itself with my temper, with my anxiety, uh, with my overworking out, with my <laughs> with my isolation. Right. Uh, and then there are times where um, it is a priority, and you know, um, that's where my focus lies. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing that. Really, I think that's just such an important thing to to give to our community and to be real about. Um, so I want to switch gears. But first, before that, you have to, and I know you and I talked Preve, that you're not going to name names, but do you have any wild stories of, because, I mean, you work with a lot of, can you name the, some of the celebrities that you work with and then tell us a story? Or so my company is very interesting. We engage with celebrities and media in unique ways. So brands basically work with me for press and marketing strategies and the execution of those strategies. So I, my part in the business is very much about the connection between creative and consumer and celebrity and consumer. So for me, um, we dress celebrities, we book celebrities for campaigns, we engage with celebrities in social media campaigns and, and paid social media programs. Um, we book celebrities to attend events. So my relationships with celebrities is uh, diverse. Um, you know, I work with people always ask me, like, who do you work with? To be very honest, I work with everybody. I dress Brad Pitt. Angelina Jolie, I've worked with Katy Perry, Rihanna, Gaga. Um, now that, you know, uh, Madonna, we've done a lot with. Um, obviously, in this new changing world of consumer, we do a lot with the Kardashian Jenners and the Hadids. Um, but that doesn't necessarily, and when I tell people this, they're all like, wow. And it, it is very impressive, but it's not like I'm sitting there having you know, Sunday brunch with the Kardashians in Calabasas, um, <laughs> I'm providing a service for brands. So right. certain situations where, you know, they don't know me, but I'm working with them on a regular basis. And then there are other situations where it's very intimate. And, you know, some of these celebrities have become very dear and close friends of mine. Um, and I'm very blessed for that friendship uh, because they are wonderful people who have these amazing careers they've created. Um, so they're just very inspiring. Um, I think the story that I always tell people is about Kim Kardashian, who, you know, is by far one of the most professional and lovely people, um, I've ever worked with. Um, we were doing an event in the Hamptons, um, two summers ago with my client Revolve and they called me 48 hours before, the event 
and we're like, we really need like a, a, a home run celebrity to show up at the event. And, um, you know, we, you know, we want to keep it within budget, but we also know what the spend is. And, you know, I'm not allowed to disclose what that spend is, but it was significant. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I remember because uh, I was currently at the um, Major uh, League Baseball, uh, uh, the MLB All-Star Game, because we also do a lot of work with athletes, even though I don't connect with sports at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it took me literally two years to know what MLB stood for. Um, nice. <laughs> I'm driving back from San Diego and I've got basically 48 hours to come up with a booking. And by the, you know, the drive from San Diego to LA is about two hours. And by the end of the, by the end of the drive, I had locked up Kim Kardashian to go to the Hamptons. And it was a, our biggest booking we had done to date at that time. Um, and then two days later, um, you know, I had to book a private jet, which I had never done before. I went, I left my house in West Hollywood at 6 a.m., met her at the jet, and we flew, we, we took the, the PJ uh, to, to the Hamptons, um, did the event, got back on the jet, and I was home for dinner. Yeah, that's insane. I had never gone, you know, coast to coast in, you know seven hours or less with Kim Kardashian with Kim Kardashian and Kim was so lovely. And you know, the funniest thing and people are like, what was so funny about it? And like, give us a good like tidbit. Uh, you know, and the thing, and it for me, I thought it was so interesting. Um, so kind. Um, but about an hour after we took off her glam team that was with her started putting her in glam and she was literally in glam getting made up for four hours I was just like, I'm like watching them powder her cheek for the 90th time. <laughs> and I'm like, this shit is so crazy. It's like, but she, and for you or I, for anybody else, would be like, I can't believe that she was getting makeup applied to her for four hours. But she is so protective of her brand and her image yeah. identity that she is such a perfectionist. But it was definitely one of those moments in my career where it's like, wait, did I just like go west to east and west in like a blink of an eye. Um, so that one was always like, that one was definitely like a, an amazing moment. The other uh, situation that I think was really amazing was um, Cardi B. I love Cardi. Uh, we do a lot of work with her. Um, last, this past Coachella, uh, we were talking with her um, and her team. We really wanted her to come to an event we were doing at Coachella um, and, you know, me and my way that I put things together, my, how my brain works was, you know, the client booked her husband, her, her, her man offset to perform. So what I did was I booked her sister, Hennessy. Yes. Her sister's <laughs> name is Hennessy. <laughs> so we booked Hennessy to attend the event. And so then I called Cardi's assistant was like, yo, your man's performing. Your sister's going to be there. You should come. Mm-hmm. And they were like, okay. And I was like, who knows if this is going to happen? And, you know, that was on a Thursday. And then on Sunday, I was like, are you guys coming? And they're like, yeah, totally. And then I spoke to the assistant. And this isn't like, yeah, her phone's off. Um, and I know she's in L.A. I'm like, well, the event started an hour ago. Yeah. 
she'd be here, you know? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And then literally we get an email being like, Cardi's about to land and she needs a car at, at the Palm Springs airport. Uh, and will you make sure that there is a mic ready for her? She wants <gasps> to perform. What? And, and so literally from, you know, thinking she bailed on us, we had to get a car to the airport, which was 13 minutes away. We had to time it. And then get her in the car with her whole team, which was like an entourage of 15, and get get this get the mic ready. And her her man was on stage. Who's her man? Offset. Okay. From, from Migos. Google okay. it. And the thing is, is that like his set finished, so we like had to get his manager on stage. We're like, he's got to keep performing. So he just like kept performing. She gets out of the car, literally in, in like a matter of 15 minutes, she gets out of the car. I say hi to her. She taps the mic twice and gets out on stage and murders the performance. And That's everyone amazing. is dying. And the client didn't even know any of this was going to happen. Were they like, you get a, you get a, like a bonus? Crying tears, but they're family to us. And I think that that's the thing is that I will always overperform for those that I love. Um, and we've got such a great relationship with them. And, you know, it was just one of those moments where it's like, wow, I actually like strung together this idea in my head and got Cardi B on a jet to perform at an event for free. Yeah. I'd say that's pretty, uh, pretty fucking incredible. Yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. I love you. I love you too. This I have so much more I want to talk to you about, but we're just going to have to pause. This is not goodbye. This is talk to you maybe next season. For sure. Um, how did you, how did you like your first podcast? I love it. I love it. I'm so proud of you and what you've created. And I think that, you know, I, I'm in the business of, you know, understanding, you know, these new form forms of, uh, of exposure and, there are so many women out there right now doing such kick-ass things like what you're doing and, you know, creating dialogue and opportunities and stages for other people um, to speak and tell their story. And I think that it's important for uh, any business owner or anybody who has got an idea or a dream to listen to others and have dialogue like what we're having. And I think it's so special that we have such a history um, and are able to kind of come to the table and have this kind of dialogue. I think it's awesome. And I'm so proud of us. I'm so proud of you. And I can't wait to see this platform of yours grow to bigger and better heights. I love you. You're so sweet. Thank you so much. This was so fun. And um, I agree. And I, I, I love what you said about like, there's nothing behind the scenes anymore. So you might as well put it all on the table yourself before someone finds it and puts it on the table for you. <laughs> Amen. So, all right, listen, you go have a blast in P-Town today. I want you to post a bunch of pictures of yourself in your teeny tiny bikini. All right. I love you. Love you. Bye, sweetie. Bye, honey. Thank you. You guys. How funny is Adam? I mean, he had me dying. I was like trying to hold my breath. I was laughing so hard. Adam, thank you so much. You are the absolute best. Um, guys, thank you for listening. If you like it, please share with your friends. Subscribe, give us some stars, and tune in next week.
Adam.